Oh, Father, what a joy is ours to gather together this morning. It is always an encouragement to meet as a body of believers in the Lord Christ. And what a privilege is ours to hold our Bibles in our hands this morning, Lord, and to receive from you your instruction, your word. Father, may we receive it in all humility. We come before you as weak vessels. Father, we are easily puffed up with pride. We are easily carried away by the winds of the popular things of this world. And so thank you for Sunday morning when we come back and we sit together. We look around and we know we're not alone. And we look up and we see we have a Bible. And we have a shepherd. And we look up a little higher and we see the Lord Jesus high and lifted up. And it humbles us and brings us back into proper alignment for another week. Father, give us a discerning heart. Give us disciplined minds. Give us a determined character that we would not only give lip service to saying we love you, but that we would live it out with lives of obedience. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19, please. Genesis chapter 19. And what an incredible passage of Scripture we find ourselves in this morning as we work our way through this great book of beginnings. The foundational book of our whole Bible is the book of Genesis. And we're taking our time a number of months to just go through it section by section receive it from the Lord. This past Friday, Friday is characteristically my day off, and um, my brother-in-law called and he said, um, my brother-in-law works at the Aberdeen Proving Ground in Aberdeen, Maryland, and he said, uh, hey Van, he said, "The, um, the Ordnance Museum that's on our campus underneath the Congressional Base Relocation Act, the Ordnance Museum is going to be relocated down to Fort Lee, Virginia. And they're working on closing it up. If you want to see it, you need to see it now. And so Jonathan and I and my brother-in-law George and his son Zach spent several hours meandering through the Ordnance Museum. Do you know what ordnance is? It's things that people throw at each other to kill each other. It's, it's bullets. It's, it's the munitions. And that's what Aberdeen has been all about through the years is um, the supply train of ammunition for all of our military branches. We walk through this little museum. It's not a big room, not much bigger than this room. Glass case after glass case. I found myself particularly moved in front of one display where I saw in detail and cutaway portions and explanation and posters the descriptive work of how good man has become at thinking of creative ways of maiming and killing one another. This display was from World War II and something that the Germans are, were notable for. And in fact, even to this day, I understand that landmines are pretty well modeled after this. RGIs called them bouncing Betty's. The way it works is it's like a tin coffee can that is very, very carefully and neatly engineered. And if you know what double-op buckshot is, it has rows and rows of double-op buckshot lined up in there with this powerful TNT explosives. But here's the thing. Whenever the cord is tripped or the mechanism is tripped to ignite the weapon, it didn't just go off. And it was spring-loaded and it would bounce up into the air and get it waist to chest high with a delayed firing mechanism. And, and it would, the wire would be tripped and you would go a ways and then it would bounce up in the air and get waist high and then it would go off, wreaking incredible destructive forces, 100 to 200 meter radius. I was very moved by it as I just stood there Excuse me. <coughs> Thanks, Kev. I'm sorry to torture you. I was in strong voice in the first service, and then it just went, just like that. 
In fact, Tim, I'm going to ask you to read Genesis 19 today, so be ready to come up. Um, Tim Hellman. Yeah. Um, as, I, as I stood in front of this display case, excuse me, I was moved, as I said, by this, these horrible inventions that seem to demonstrate the, the limitless capacity that man has for creative ways to destroy one another. It was one other thing that caught my eye in the same glass case. It was something I had missed. I wasn't familiar with them. My brother-in-law knew about them, and I've talked to some guys here this morning, and they were very, very well aware of them. It's the word, I think it's pronounced, fluchet. Is that how you say it? Fluchet. It's razor blades that were lined up row after row after row. They shoot them through howitzers, and they, they blow up, and they even make them for 12-gauge shotguns. And they had display after display of these fluchettes. Little tiny blades that would just spray across the enemy and just slice and dice. So I stood there horrified and thinking about the results of the sinfulness of man's heart that has brought on warfare, that has caused people to slaughter one another's children. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be working across the field with your group, your buddies, and to hear that pop, and to know that a mine had been sprung, and to think about the reality, and this has happened to hundreds of people thousands of times. They look over, and the mine has sprung up in the air. You see, it doesn't go off right away, and so the whole group turns and looks, and there it is, suspended in the air. And then it goes off. How incredibly horrible that moment must be. To know that the mine has been tripped, the line has been tripped, The weapon has been ignited, and there it is, and there's nothing you can do about it. This morning, we're going to try to get through Genesis 19, most of it. I want you to have that kind of mindset. That destruction is imminent, and here it is. The cord has been tripped, and there's nothing you can do about it. Only it's not the destructive creativity of mankind. It's God's wrath that's going to be poured out. And it's an incredible moment that we find in Genesis 19. Tim, I invite you to the platform this morning. And I ask you uh, impromptu here to read for me just to spare my voice. And uh, I am going to need a bottle of water. I am sorry to draw attention to myself like this. It's just just happened from my cold. We're going to read now. Tim is going to read our text this morning. It's Genesis chapter 19. And we're going to read through verse 29. That will be the end of our text. Will you follow closely along? It reads well. It is an incredible story. And we'll go from there. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, Please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here? 
sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you, get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry, take your wife and two daughters who are here or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But the Lord said, to, I'm sorry, but Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zor. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, that he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Thank you, Tim. Well done. Well, what an incredible, incredible passage of Scripture. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine the circumstances that brought it on and then this incredible moment of destruction that Lot very narrowly missed out on? What I want us to do is break our story down in two parts. First of all, I want us to just break the story down and understand the parts of the story and what exactly is happening. That's the first part of our message. The second part of our message is I want to take a look at the people in the story. And I want us to make application to our own lives as to these people, these folks that are involved in the story. This is an incredible passage of scripture. It's also a passage of scripture that a lot of people choke on. It's difficult sometimes to understand what is God doing and is God really a loving God and is he merciful? But what we have to remember is what we have before our eyes unfolding is really in essence what I call the doctrine of annihilation. It is that there is a point in time where the spiritual law of the universe that we've emphasized reaches its full fruition and that is that the wages of sin is always death. Just like if you take a basketball and throw it up in the air, the law of gravity demands that the ball comes down. There is a spiritual law that is taught in God's word, and that is that the wages of sin is always death. You cannot be avoided. And the great thing about being a Christian is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who took our place and died for us, paying the penalty for our sin. Let's take a look at the passage. Let's see what's happening it is an incredible story as I've commented. The first thing we see, we remind ourselves that in the end of chapter 18, Abraham has just finished this dialogue with God. And he has gone back and forth in this, in essence, a negotiation. How many righteous people have to be in Sodom before you'll spare the city, Lord? He gets down to 10. The conversation stops rather abruptly. The Lord leaves. Abraham goes home. Right before that conversation had begun, the two angelic men who had accompanied the Lord to Abraham's, remember when, we, when he had hosted them and fed them, they went down into Sodom 
Chapter 19, verse 1, when Tim read, is where we pick it up. And we can see the first thing we see when we arrive in Sodom, when these two men arrive in Sodom, is we have a comfortable, confident man. We find Lot a comfortable, confident man. 19.1, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Now, I take it to be it was just a normal evening. I take it to be it was like any other night of his life. We can, by implication, discern from the fact that Lot is now sitting at the gate, that he has worked his way up in the ranks and he is known in the city. He is recognized in the city. It very, very well may be that he is a magistrate or in political position in the city. The gateway of the eastern city was a very important place. It was a place where trade and commerce took place. Important people hung out there. It was a place where you got the news. It was a place where you, in the evening, would quiet down after the transactions of the day, after the money-making and the business and the bartering, the decision-making and the adjudicating that had gone on. In the, as the evening cool came on, they would sit there and then just pick up on the gossip of the day before they retired to their homes. We find Lot here comfortable and confident. We'll not take time to look up the verses, but if you track back a few chapters, do you recall the progression that we've seen in Lot's life so far? He, remember, he looked towards Sodom, and then he pitched his tent towards Sodom, and then we find him living in Sodom. We find him sitting at the gates in Sodom. Later in this passage, we're going to find him calling the men of Sodom his friends. There's been a downward slide in Lot's life as he's connected and interfaced with this community of individuals. At this point, we find him a comfortable and confident man who looks up and sees these two angelic friends coming in. Based on the culture of the day and the Eastern mindset, when there were guests who were coming through, much like what we talked about when Abraham looked up and saw the Lord and these two men with him, these two angelic men, he immediately felt a responsibility of a host. The second thing we see in the passage, verses 2 and 3, is we see Lot, a concerned host. Lot is now a concerned host. He gets up, and when he saw them, he got up to meet them. The end of verse 1. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way. Let me refresh you. And that's what happens. You notice that he's a concerned host because the response of the angelic men was, no, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. That is, we're going to go down to the city and we'll just hang out at the city tonight. We'll be all right. Lot knows that you don't do that. Lot knows that if you spend the night in the city square, you don't wake up in the morning. You'll be dead by morning. It's interesting, I think, that what's happening here might be a reflection of what God said to Abraham in chapter 18. Look at verse 20. Just let your eyes glance over the page. And then the Lord said, 1820, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. We talked about how that was an anthropomorphic expression, taking on the qualities of a man to describe what God would do. Of course God knew what was going on in Sodom. God didn't have to take on flesh to go down there to walk the streets to see what was happening. But he was just proving to them, proving to the reader, proving to Abraham, proving to Lot, I know what's going on in Sodom, and it's bad. And so as these men enter the city and they say, we're going to go down and spend the night in the square, it's, a, it's sort of a follow-up of that concept. Hey, we're here. We see. We're going to just observe. We know what's going on here. This is a bad place. Abraham knows you can't do that, so he's a concerned host. He begs them to come to his house, verse 3, and he insists so strongly that they did so with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. It was in a hurry, and so the yeast didn't have time to work. It was matzah bread. They sat down and ate, ate. And he, much like Uncle Abraham, is a host here. He's not the model of hospitality that we found in Abraham, nor does he throw the feast that Abraham had done the day before for these guys, but he is concerned as a host. The next thing we see in our passage, verses 4 and 5, is we see Sodom as a completely corrupt community. We see Sodom as a completely corrupt community. Look at verses 4 and 5. They ate their meal, and they ate, then verse 4, Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, 
surrounded the house. They called on Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. I think that Moses, the historian here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is making a statement by his selection of words. Perhaps it's a little bit of an overstatement and a generalization the way we speak, but the language is particularly clear that this city is corrupt through and through. Notice what it says. All the men from every part of the city, and then both young men and old men. It was intergenerational, and it was permeated throughout the city. We have here not even the, what would be considered in our day, even among some evangelical churches, the respectable position of a homosexual monogamous relationship, but we have really the setting for a crazed crowd seeking a gang rape is what it is. It's a horrible scene. It's representative of the debauchery and the baseness of the entire city. A completely corrupt community. Lot, sitting at the gate, a comfortable man. Then he's a concerned host. We now see the whole city as completely corrupt. We kind of have some respect for Lot here for a moment. Look what he does. These men come to his door. They called out to Lot, verse 5. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can have them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. I suspect that the reason Lot had insisted that they come to his house is that he knew what the men of this city were thinking already. These were angelic men. No doubt they were fine-looking men, even beautiful men, who'd come into town. There's new blood in town. Lot went outside to meet them. He shuts the door. No, my friends. You can kind of respect Lot. He's standing up and he says, Do not do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters. All of a sudden it changes. I didn't know what else to say, but number four, verses six through 11, is just a whole crazy concept goes on here. Number six, verse six, Lot went outside to meet them and he shut the door behind him and he said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. And you can do what you will, what you like with them, but don't do anything to these men. For they have come underneath the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien, speaking of Lot. And now he wants to play the judge. See, he had just stood there and called them wicked. Don't tell us what we are. Who do you think you are to cast your morality down on us? We kind of have respect for Lot going into this passage, but then it's mind-boggling. It's just crazy, isn't it, to think. And what was going on in the mind of Lot? He's out on the front porch... There's a crazy, frenzied crowd of wild men there with the basest of intention. And he says, how about if you take my two daughters who've never known a man, just take them. What was Lot thinking? And I suspect that he knew that they would say no to that. And so he didn't really think he was risking the life, the lives of his daughters. But what kind of father would even propose such an option? A man who has become so embedded in his culture, he can't even think straight anymore. At this point, we basically lose all respect for Lot. The angels then come to his rescue. Notice what happens in verses 9 through 11. He says in the end of verse 8, Don't do anything to these men. They've come under... The protection of my roof, get out of the way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien, talking about Lot. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot, moved forward to break the door down. They're going crazy in their lust and in their screaming and in their intention. But the men inside reached out, pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. And then, much in the way that we know in a later story, when Elisha, the armies were struck blind. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. And you get the idea in the passage that they stayed there as a mob in a blind frenzy, groping, continuing to seek the end of their intentions. It's crazy. It's a mess. It's a community that has gone completely corrupt. We find ourselves, number five, looking now at Sodom as a condemned city, verses 12 and 13. 
Sodom, a condemned city. Look what it says. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. This place is condemned. You can't live here anymore. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Sodom, a condemned city. Exactly what Abraham understood was on the mind of God and the intention of these two angelic men God sent down to destroy the city. The wages of sin is death. There is a time when a holy God brings wrath and condemnation upon sinners. We find that God in his mercy and his grace is allowing Lot to escape. We're going to hear later, it's hard to understand, but Lot is a righteous man. You will see Lot in heaven someday. He's a saved man in essence. And God allows in his grace for him to escape the wrath that he's going to pour out on these cities. The next thing we see in our story, number six, is a confused family. A confused family. Notice how confused Lot's family is, including himself, really. Verses 14 through 17. So Lot went out and he spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. And he said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city But his sons-in-law, look at this, thought he was joking. Let me tell you something. I'll give you an exercise. Go down to the Martinsburg Mall or to Frederick to the mall and just kind of walk around the mall and try to spot some young people, 19 to 25 years old, walking around, hanging out in their little groupie or 17 to 25 year old, and just find a group of guys and go up to them and say, guys, I have news for you. You are sinners, and God is going to judge you for your sin. In fact, God is going to judge the whole world. In fact, the world is going to come under fire, and God is going to destroy the whole world. You had better get right with God, or you're going to live forever in eternal fire of hell. See what their response is. Just walk up to them and tell them that. I'm here to warn you today, guys. I want to warn you guys of something. The world is coming to an end. See what they do. Probably the same thing that Lot's sons-in-law do. They look at him, it's like, what are you talking about? They think that he's joking. Now, not only is this a statement about Lot's sons-in-law, but I think this is a a statement about Lot himself. This is a confused family. This is a family that has been without spiritual leadership. This is a family where the father, Lot, has no moral authority with which to speak to his kids. Now, I suspect what they said is, didn't I just hear you offer your daughters to the crowd? What are you telling me? Something wrong with me? Lot totally lacks credible spiritual integrity and his sons-in-law think he's a joke. It's interesting, isn't it? Well, we find out that he is a conflicted father. That's the next thing, verses 18 to 22. We'll continue to read at verse 13. His sons-in-law thought he was joking the end of verse 14, excuse me. Now verse 15, with the coming of dawn, all night long this went on. There was hubbub. We got to go. Bring a condemnation on this city all night long. Hurry, take your wife and two daughters who are here or you will be swept away when the city is punished. Now look at verse 16. We have a conflicted father. He hesitates. When he hesitated... The men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. Now, just think about this for a moment. I take it that Abraham really believes that these guys are telling him the truth and that it's really going to happen. He turns to his sons-in-law and tries to tell them. They laugh at him. The angels grab Lot and one of his daughters by the hand, his wife and one of the daughters by the hand. Each got, and off they go. Come on, they're dragging him out of the house. Let's go. He hesitated. What is that all about? I suspect that. Couldn't imagine leaving his house. This is his city. This is his people. But not only that, look what happens next. This, Lot's incredible. 
They said, get to the mountains, flee, or you'll be swept away. Verse 18. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. 21, he said to him, very well, I will grant you this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That's amazing. Let's go. So, wait a minute, wait a minute. Stop, time out. I don't really want to go where you're telling me to go. I'm not really good in the mountains. I'm, I'm like, there's no showers there. There's like, you know, no refrigerators. There's a little town right there. Let me go to the town. And it's like, you almost have the sense that the angel knows that the wrath of God is coming and he can't stop it. So he's like, okay, do that. And let's get out of here. Even though it does say they're the ones who are bringing the wrath as well. It's interesting, isn't it? You have a confused family and a conflicted father. But now we see number eight, verses 23 through 25, a consuming fire. We find God's consuming fire coming down on these cities. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land, and then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. From the Lord out of the heavens, this sulfur came. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. A consuming fire. It's always interesting to me when we get to these parts of the story, you find the same thing in the story of Jonah and the great fish that swallowed him. You find it in uh, the story of the great flood with Noah, the universal worldwide flood. And the commentaries always kind of detour here for a little bit, and they begin to talk about all the natural causes that could have made this happen. And it is interesting that there is a great rift that comes through right through this part of the country. It goes down into northern Africa, and it is... It was an area of great earthquakes. It's possible that God timed the destruction of these cities with this earthquake. And a lot of commentaries and people believe that what happened was there was volcanic activity. There was great eruption out of the earth. It shot up molten lava and sulfur and all this. And chemical gases and burning hot gases. And it dropped them on these cities and burned them to ashes. I don't know. All I know is it says in my Bible... It came out of the heavens from the Lord. It's good enough for me. Bam! The destruction comes. Isn't that incredible? There they are, and this consuming fire slams down on ultimately four cities in this valley, destroying all of them. The pitiful nature of the story and the dysfunction of this family then is exemplified even further By number nine, Lot's compromised wife. By the time they reached Zohar, the sun had risen. And then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. It came from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain. Verse 26, but Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. I've had quite a time this week imagining this. You kind of see the way the movies do it. You know, they're running and, you know, it's like, you know, she's a pillar of salt. It's interesting, though, when you look at the text, I don't think it quite happened that way. I was kind of picturing it with Lot and his children heading out, him grabbing his outer garment and bringing it up over his head. Maybe there was ash and, you know, little bits of fire and sparks falling and rocks tumbling around him and he's running. Come on, you guys, come on, you guys, and creating a visual barrier, and then his wife looked back, and she turns into a pillar of salt, and, you know, I wonder if Lot kind of backed up. It's like, honey, come on, honey, you know, what's going on here? And, well, we'll think about her later, you know. But it didn't really happen that way, I don't think. I think there's two clues to know that it didn't happen quite like that. For one thing, it says that they reached Zohar before the destruction of the city came. And the second thing, in a minute, when we look at the people of this story and we look at Lot's wife, we're going to see what our Lord Jesus used Lot's wife as an example of. 
It's evident that they had reached Zor and that Lot's wife was a compromised person. She was a person who loved her world. She loved her stuff. And evidently, as they reached the city, she literally began to go back. Some commentators suggest that then the molten lava and the the cataclysmic burning gases of the the day, and kind of like in Pompeii when the mountain erupted and they came through their party halls and they were frozen like pillars in time because of the molten lava and they were instantly fossilized, that there's that kind of thing. She began to head back and in disobedience to God and because she was there heading back, she was in a place where she shouldn't have been and she was covered with molten and there are salt formations and things there. It's a real salty, briny part of the country. In fact, it's interesting that Josephus, the Jewish historian in one commentary I was reading, he was quoting Josephus, who was a well-known contemporary, just about a contemporary with Jesus Christ, who wrote a history of Israel, that he said he would go up into this part of the country and he has seen Lot's wife. He had seen the salt formation that was Lot's wife and that there were these various, and they believed that that's the one that was her. I don't know if she fell down and got covered with molten and it was a result of being in the wrong place at the wrong time out of her disobedience. It just says that she became a pillar of salt. She became fossilized somehow. She was dead. Instantly. Bam. Her compromising heart and her longing and you could understand it to some degree. I think it is likely that they had children that they left behind. We'll leave it there for a minute and see what the Lord Jesus uses her as an illustration of. Number 10, finally, as we break down our story, it comes to an end. Verse 26 again, but Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and he returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. A lot happened in about 24 hours, didn't it? He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Number 10, what we see in our story, I know how else to phrase it is, a cool uncle. Everybody needs an uncle like that, don't they? Did you see what it said? It said, when the Lord looked over the valley, he remembered Abraham, so he delivered Lot. That's pretty good to have an uncle that brings that redeeming quality to your family. It was through Abraham that Lot believed. It was through Abraham that Lot had received the reality of the message of God and his expectation. And Lot, we're going to see in a minute when we look at him, was a righteous man because of the intercessory ministry and the evangelistic ministry of Uncle Abraham. Well, what a story it is. What a remarkable, cataclysmic, I think the word horrible is appropriate for this passage let's break it down a little bit further and let's make it apply to our lives now a little bit more by looking at four sets of people in the story. First of all, let's look at Lot. He's kind of the key player, isn't he? And we have in Lot, number one, the picture of what I call the powerless Christian. The Lot is the picture of a powerless Christian. We're going to have to use our Bibles a little bit now, so let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, will you please? We'll not belabor these points, but I want you to turn in your Bibles with me and do a little Bible study as we find out how the words Sodom and Gomorrah, what they represent in other parts of the Scripture. We're going to see in 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 4, we're going to see here why God did this. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, 
If he, God, did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, there you go. Say, why did God condemn these people? Why did God torch these cities? One reason he did it is that they now stand as an example, a living visual to the rest of the world throughout history, that if you don't think God is a God of judgment, remember Sodom and Gomorrah. This is what God does to base, sinful, wicked people who have totally rejected him. They stand as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Verse 7 then, And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man lived among them day after day, was torment, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the sinful nature and despise authority. Wow. In the middle of all that, Peter declares unequivocally that Lot is a righteous man. And not only that, that living there in Sodom vexed his soul day in and day out. So then what is it about Lot that when you read the story, every implication is that he was a benign representative of God in that culture? And one of the things you can't say is you can't say necessarily that it, he wasn't supposed to live in a wicked city. If Lot's not supposed to live in a wicked city, what are we supposed to do? We have wicked cities all across our country. We have wicked cities everywhere. Monasticism is not the answer. Isolationism doesn't cure a sinful heart, does it? You go live up on a platform on a pole out in the woods and be as sinful and dirty when you come down as when you went up. Jesus himself said, it's not what goes into a man that corrupts him. It's what comes out of a man's heart. We have sinful hearts. The Apostle Paul clearly stated in 1 Corinthians 15, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 5, when he was dealing with the immoral man in the Corinthian church. Remember the guy who was living with his father's wife? And he says, don't have anything to do with immoral people. And then he gives a parenthetical thought there. He says, not the people of this world, you would have to leave the world to stay away from immoral people. So it wasn't necessarily bad or wrong or improper that Lot lived in a city that was a wicked city. The only thing we conclude, conclude though, by the, the weak character that he displayed and by the fact that he demonstrated essentially no spiritual credibility to his family and that he lacked all moral authority in his community was that he was there for the wrong reasons. And even though he sat at the gate and when he heard the... <coughs> excuse me, when he heard the bad reports, it, he hated it. And I got to thinking, man, I, but I wonder what he watched on TV when he went home that night. He would hear the stories. He would hear the news of the day. He would observe the activity and behavior of the city. And he would say, oh man, this is a wicked place. Man, those people are bad. And he did have enough gumption when he was out on his front porch to say to those guys, don't do this wickedness. And yet, evidently, he didn't hate it enough to purge it from his home or to purge it from his family. He was a conflicted man living in this world, hating it on the one hand, and then going out for dinner and some entertainment to watch it on the other hand. Oh, I hate all this sin. Oh, I'll pay money and go watch this sin for fun. What's that all about? You ever do that? It's like, oh, I hate this sin, but man, I really love this world. I really want the Lord to return and I really want to go to heaven, but I got all these other projects going on too that I really, really care about. 
And I think that that's Lot. He just, he loved living in Sodom. He just loved the city. He loved the activity of the people. He, he loved living in this world to the degree that it neutralized his spiritual potency. He was a guy who was so earthly minded that he was no heavenly good. And yet he was righteous. Sound like anybody you know today? Look at Jude before we turn away from this passage. First and second Peter, first and second, third John, Jude, Revelation. Look at Jude and verse 6. Jude and verse 6. There's no chapters in Jude. It's just one, it's just uh, 20, 25 verses. Jude and verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. I want you to listen for just a minute before we look on at the other characters in this story. One of the things that we find in this story is this matter of homosexuality and sexual perversion. A lot of liberal theologians, and it's become even more popular even in among, uh, across our country in evangelical churches, to say that Sodom's great sin wasn't homosexuality per se, but it was the fact that they wanted to do gang rape. It was the fact that they wanted to have an indecent kind of homosexual relationship. That it wasn't homosexuality per se. We we're not going to take the time to explore it right now, but part of their problem was the sexual immorality that was rampant at whatever level it was. Jude says their sexual immorality and their perversion serve as an example of those who suffer punishment. Paul in Romans chapter 1 clearly says this in chapter 2. He says that people who deny God his rightful place in their lives, that after a point, God will let them go the direction that they want to go. What happens then is a culture and a people who are denying God will gradually just turn away from the morality of biblical ethic and God's standard of living, and they will do what sinners do to the point that the whole culture becomes permeated with a base sinfulness. Okay, So it wasn't just homosexuality that God destroyed Sodom for. It was the, the whole broad span of their sinfulness and their rejection of God that finally, ultimately, brings the wrath of God, the condemnation on all sin. We're going to see a little bit more about this in a minute. You have to believe and you have to know that somewhere along the line, somebody in Sodom said... No more can you carry a Bible in our schools in Sodom. Somewhere in Sodom, somebody had to say, you know what, you can talk about any religion or any religious leader you want, but that Jesus Christ, you don't talk about him in our school, in our community. Somewhere along the line in Sodom, somebody said, you know those Ten Commandments that are on the wall of our adjudicating buildings and in our courtrooms? You've got to get those off the wall. You don't have any business to tell us how to live our lives. And what you have is a creeping downgrade. You have a slippery slope of a people and a culture who not overnight, but who on a gradual progressive downward trend, simply reject God out of their lives. And as we'll see in a minute, begin to fill their lives with other things. The first thing, picture of the person we have in here is Lot, the picture of a powerless Christian. Let's go to Luke 17 really quickly and let's look at Lot's wife, number two, the picture of a careless person. The picture of a careless person. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. Luke 17, verses 26 through 37, and this is the words of our Lord Jesus, and look what he says. You'll notice in these passages that reference Sodom and Gomorrah that they continually, he continually uses the, the era of time when the world was filled with sinfulness and God brought the flood, the universal Noah's flood, as a destructive force. 
he uses it also. So the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah are used in a parallel way to represent the kind of destruction that God will bring upon mankind. Jesus here in Luke 17 is teaching about the destruction at the end of the age when the Lord will return at his second coming. It hasn't happened yet. But look at Luke 17, 26. Just as in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But, that, but the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Okay, Jesus is bringing this up. Jesus believed that Noah's flood really happened. Jesus believed that there were people who heard Noah, the righteous preacher, rejected him, and one day heard the rain hit their roof. But it was too late. Jesus believed 100% in the historicity of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction thereof, and he's using it as an example. A normal day, everything's great. Building, buying, selling, trading, developing, growing. Hey, life is good. To the very end. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven. Bam, just like that. The old bouncing Betty bounces up in the air and all of a sudden you go from telling a joke to your buddies while you're walking across the field to looking at your destruction right in front of your face. It, was, it will be just like this, verse 30, on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife! Exclamation point. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Here's what happened to Lot's wife. She was just careless about the instruction she certainly received from Abraham and even Lot himself. She knew from the angels, go, flee, don't come back. But remember Lot's wife, Jesus said. She wanted to go back. Oh, I cannot leave all of this. It was misplaced priorities. It was a carelessness about her own spiritual watch. I believe you will not see Lot's wife in heaven. She loved the world. James says, pure religion is this. Pure and undefiled religion is this. That you take care of the poor. That you take care of orphans. And that you remain unspotted from the world. Not only did Lot not remain unspotted from the world, but his family took it farther than he did, and they loved the world and were embedded in the world to the degree that they didn't even long for a heavenly home at all. That's Lot's wife, the picture of a careless person. Lot's sons-in-law, I've kind of mentioned them already, Lot's sons-in-law are a picture of godless children. A picture of godless children. Lot turns to them... Change, man. we got to get out of here. This is no good. Change your ways. Come with us. Leave. Repent. Turn away from the past. Laugh, 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 laugh. Who do you think you are? Listen, young people that are in this room, you, you cannot overstate the gravity, the seriousness of having a pastor, having a parent, having Tim Laymaster and Sunday School Pastor Everett on Wednesday night open the Word of God and warn you that you must live for Jesus. You must fight the flesh. You must stand against the evil one, Satan. You must separate from the world. You must walk in obedience. And if on the inside you say, bah, humbug, I don't need that. You'll be like Lot's sons-in-law and the burning sulfur will fall on your head one day. You'll be without excuse. The great privilege of having the truths of the Word of God. Getting to play basketball and then to get to open your Bible in the great youth group setting. To get a lollipop handed out afterwards. It's just so fun to come to. And to say, don't do that. Don't do that. The godlessness of the age will overwhelm you 
And apart from the mercy and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you'll die in a Christless eternity. Condemned to a greater fate than the natives of the deepest jungle because having a Bible, you were bored by it. Wake up. Sodom and Gomorrah are here as an example. They're an example to all of us lots. And they're an example to all of us lots wives. And they're an example to all of lots children. Ultimately, the city itself is a picture of a hopeless people. You can read in Ezekiel 16, 48 through 49, that pride and materialism had overwhelmed them to the degree that they had rejected God. And I've already emphasized that. And when a people group reject God, they wind down into paganism every time without failure. It might take 40, 60, 140 years. It will happen. And then God says, my patience is gone. Well, we need to stop there and we'll draw some more lessons as we wrap up the chapter and we find Lot living in a cave as a caveman from the gates of the city to living in a cave in just a few days. I don't know who you identify with in this story. Are you Lot, the picture of a powerless Christian, vexed and disturbed by the sin around you, but yet in love with it at the same time? Are you Lot's wife, just careless about your whole spiritual household and all you really care about is silverware, china, wallpaper, your community activities, loving this world, lots of sons-in-law, godless characters. You hear the word of God and you just say, that's not for me. I don't need that stuff. I beg of you today to bow in repentance. I've sensed the need for revival in my own life. I think there's a need for revival in the church across the country. And certainly, if you're here without Christ today, I beg of you to accept the love of Jesus Christ in your life. It's been kind of a harsh message in a way, a strong part of God's wrath being displayed in this historical account. But God loves you and has mercy. He's a merciful God. He got a lot out of there. The righteousness saved him. Why don't you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior today? I love what Paul says in Romans 5.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Man, you want a parachute to have on? Have Jesus' parachute on. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And those of us who are in Christ, let's live like it, right? Let's fight the good fight. Let's persevere. Let's reject worldliness and all the trappings. And let's get our eyes on Jesus and let's let him grow us into what he wants us to be. Let's bow in prayer. Well, Father, we um, receive this historical account with all sincerity and gravity, recognizing that it's pretty easy for us to get distracted and Lord of all people we are certainly a a people who are comfortable and we are self-sufficient which breeds pride which leads us to a, a lack of felt need for you which leads to being wise in our own eyes which leads to our own decision-making, which ultimately leads to raising another generation without you, which leads to a generation of pagans, which leads to ultimately a corrupt community. And so, Father, may we, your church, be a pure church, a holy church, a holy bride dressed in white raiment, spotless from the sin of this world. Father, may we take the lessons of Lot, and though he was righteous and vexed by the people around him, He was kind of spiritually powerless. and So forgive us for having resurrection power in us and living as though we have no understanding of it.
Convict us, challenge us, and change us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.